Hey, it's great to see you. I, I want to invite you, go ahead and grab your copy of the scriptures or your electronic device or whatever you have and turn to the first book of the Bible, Genesis in chapter 3. Are you awake? Okay, we got a few of you with me. It's good to have you. So marriage was made in God's image. We talked about this over the last couple of weeks. Marriage is made in God's image. And then there's this equation, there's this divine equation for oneness. So to experience oneness in your marriage, and you know, we're not just talking to married couples here today. Even if you're single, maybe one day you will be married, or you know, you know people who are married. And so all of this is important for every one of us. So to experience God-like oneness in your marriage, the Bible gives us equation from Genesis 2.24, and it says, for man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they will be one flesh. So this equation for one flesh is to leave and to cleave. Now, when we talked about this before, we mentioned that one of the biggest hindrances to cleaving is never leaving. Where there's a greater loyalty and devotion to someone or something else than our spouse, it obviously affects the cleaving. And if that doesn't happen, if you don't come together truly and unite, then you're not one flesh. So in order to cleave, you need to leave. But then some people can leave but never cleave. And some people experience that in their home. They may leave all others. They may come into their home and be very alone. <clears throat> and one has said, you know, oftentimes marriage is a woman leaving the attention of many for the inattention of one. And sadly, that's true. Where there's not the effort to cleave, to unite, to truly be one. There's not the continual action of the, of the relationship to be one. So the God-honoring equation, to look like the Godhead in your marriage, you need to leave. Your loyalty needs to be attached to your spouse. You need to cleave actively, and together you will be one flesh. So now you're probably saying, man, that sounds really simple. Like, Brian, you know, you're talking my language. I understand. We need to resemble God. You just leave and cleave and you're one flesh. Presto, you know, this is going to be a piece of cake, huh? And some are saying, why is it so stinking hard? Like, why are we struggling? Why is marriage tough at times? So let me tell you why it's hard. I'm just going to break it to you. I'm going to lay it right out. Here's why. You ready? Your marriage is cursed. Your marriage is cursed. I'm sure there's some people sitting here today saying, say, what? My marriage is cursed? Then there are other people sitting here saying, I could have told you that. You know, that's not new news to me. You know, I could have told you that a long time ago. But our marriage is cursed. And I'm going to show you in the scriptures where all of this happened in Genesis chapter 3. Now what I want to do, it's going to be a little different how we want to work through this. I, just, I want to set up the scene. I just want to work through the passage 
And then I don't want to leave you with a curse. I want to leave you with a cure. That's where we want to finish up. So here's how this scene works. So in Genesis 2.24, right before, is, um, Genesis 2.25, the verse right before chapter 3, here's how it sets up. There's been the beautiful scene of creation. God made everything that exists in six literal days. And he made man and woman. He made them to resemble him. And he says, you know, I want you to leave and cleave and become one. And then Genesis 2.25, the text says, so the man and the woman were both naked and they were not ashamed. And I know that that sounds just like quick in passing. They were, they were both naked. They were not ashamed. Well, there's a unique play on words here in the text. And so the word for naked in the Hebrew is arumim. And I'm going to show you how this works with verse 1 of chapter 3. So arumim, the word for naked here, means they were innocent. They were naive. And whenever I see this, I end up thinking about my boys probably three years ago at bath time. Maybe some of you parents have experienced with your kids uh, when they're little and it's bath time and they're in the tub and then you get them out and you dry them off and then the next thing you know, they hightail it naked as a jaybird through the house and they're doing about 100 miles an hour all around and of course my girls are doing one of these numbers like, oh my word. And they have no, I, my boys have no idea what in the world. Now thankfully, praise the Lord, they've grown out of that. Amen? I mean, boys can grow up in some ways. That's the word arumim. They were naked. They were innocent. They were naive. They had no idea. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Check this out. You can almost, like a horror flick, the music changes, the lights come low, and it's like, what's going on here? Because Adam and Eve were naive, but then there's someone else, chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent. It says, now the serpent was more crafty. Here's the play on words. Remember, Adam and Eve were naked, a room the serpent was crafty, a room. There's this total play on words in the Hebrew. A room means he was deceptive. He was shrewd. He was street smart. He knew how to take someone down. And so can, can you feel the vibe? Like everything was beautiful all the way up through chapter 2. And then all of a sudden, here chapter 3 comes, and there's this serpent who his nature and his character was bent toward taking people down. That was, that was the way that, that he ended up preying on people. <clears throat> he knew the ropes. And so then look here over the next few verses, and we're going to see what he does. So he said to the woman, the end of verse 1, follow this. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, but we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Notice verse 4. 
You will not certainly die, the serpent, said, or the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here the serpent, in his deception, wanting to prey upon the innocent and the naive, he laces lies with truth. His whole intention is to twist their thoughts to trip Eve up. So we're working through this scene, and then notice the, the second thing. Not only was there decency and deception initially, where they were naked and Satan was crafty, then there was this fatal decision that happened, and here's where it happened in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye... And also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So here's this fatal decision and it, and it outlines in two different ways. So follow this. Here is the two screw-ups in all of this. The very first thing is, does it look weird that she's talking to a serpent? I mean, have you had conversations with a snake? Now, I have. Normally, it's Morse code through the end of a shovel. That's my conversation. I'm not a fan of snakes. I have one snake story. I may have told you in the past. I'll tell you, tell you really quick. The first service didn't get this. So this is all no extra charge. My wife and I in our first home, this is back in the 90s, um, I was working in the bathroom upstairs and I uh, turned the valve too far and it started to spray. It was behind the toilet. The valve started to spray. When I held it down, the water wouldn't come out. But the second I let go, it did. So I, I said, wife, come on over here. I think I called her by her name. Lisa, come on over here. Hold this down, please. I need to run downstairs and turn the water off. <clears throat> and so she's holding it, and I was in my bare feet. So I put on, this is really going to date this. I put on my penny loafers. Any of you remember penny loafers? God bless you. Let's have a moment of silence for penny loafers. They've been gone for a while now. I put on my penny loafers, ran down. Anyone still wear penny loafers? Let's have a moment of silence for them if, that, if that's the case. Okay. Ran downstairs, and I turned the corner into our laundry room where the water valves were, and I gasped. <gasps> and there was a live snake on the floor in our laundry room. And my wife upstairs said, what's wrong, honey? And I knew if I told her, she would never do laundry another day in her life in that room. So I, okay, honest. So I lied. Oh, nothing, dear. And I remember I, I looked at that snake and I just had to make a quick decision. And this is gonna come up a little bit later when you see the story. I took my shoe, penny loafer, right on its head. And I'm wearing shorts. And that snake 
curled up around my leg, and I'm like, ooh. And finally, when it kind of let down, I grabbed a garbage bag, put it in it, threw it out the back door, disposed of it the next day, and didn't tell my wife until maybe about 10 years later or something like that, when we moved out of the house. That's my snake story. Okay, where were we, by the way? <laughs> she was listening to a snake. Here's the crazy thing. In chapter 1, God said, you're supposed to have dominion over everything. Chapter 1, verse 27, after he made man and woman, he said, um, have dominion over the birds of the, of the air, everything in the field, everything in the sea, everything that crawls on the ground. You have dominion over it. And here's the part of Genesis 3. What they were to have dominion over, they were allowing to have dominion over them. Do you see it? They're listening to the very thing that they're supposed to be commanding. Mistake number one. Like, it should be like, whoa, you're a snake. I've been put in charge over you. You do not counsel me. And there's so much here, we don't have time for it, but there's so many things in our lives that we're to have dominion over and rule over that we let rule over us. Addictions, preoccupations, anxieties. Here's the second thing that was wrong in the picture. Notice this. Verse 6. There was an issue of rule, and then there was an issue of relationship. So check this out and, and, and fill in the blank with me here in just a moment. So she noticed the, the whole thing about the food, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it. You following this? Notice this about her husband. She also gave some to her husband. And where was he? Who was where? Okay, thank you, all two of you. Who was where? He was with her. Like, what? Adam was there the whole time. So follow this. They were supposed to be resembling the image of God in their relationship. There's supposed to be this oneness. Remember? Leave, cleave, one flesh. You guys are supposed to look like God in your relationship and be together as one. Be unified on the whole thing. And so here in this situation... Eve is debating with the serpent that she's to be having dominion over, and Adam is standing there passively apart, doing nothing about this. There is no interchange between the two of them on any of this. And here's the wording I give to you. They were together, but not one. Does that resonate with you? They were together, but not one. I just said the phrase of many relationships 
in our churches and in our nation. Well, we're still together. I mean, we're still married. But you realize that's not God's goal for your relationship, is just to be together. It's to be one. It's to look like God in your relationship. It's to have the oneness and unification that he does. And so here's Eve in independence, disregarding, some may even saying now in our wording, disrespecting, she's not involving in any way her husband in in the decision that spun the universe. And here's the husband, here's Adam, with a complete lack of leadership, indifference, a lack of love, and you look at this and you say, there's a lack of love and there's a lack of respect. And with that, I give a quick commercial to our group, Love and Respect, that starts this Thursday that some of us would greatly benefit by. And if you want to sign up for that, you connect with our church office or seeing Dan and Marlene Baldwin who are just up here and they're sitting right down here. Love and respect the next 10 weeks starting this Thursday night at 6.30 right here at church. Love and respect. And then to amplify the problem, look at this. So they, they sin, they take it. God comes looking for them. And jump down to verse 12. So God's like, um, hey, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? And the man said, look at this. You talk about not one anymore. You talk about not being on the same page. Adam totally throws Eve under the bus. You know, her. She's to blame. The woman. She gave it to me. And you want to know another one, God? You made her. Like, she must be defective. She's got a problem. I would not have done this if it weren't for her. Boy, doesn't that sound like one? So the fabric of their oneness took a nosedive through this. They were together, sure, One, no. I want to show you this. The blessing turned into a curse. This is where it all blew up. Here's the hard part, because in Genesis 1, right after God made Adam and Eve, he said, you know what? I made you, you're made in my image. And then he said the most beautiful thing. I'm blessing you. I want to bless you. Be fruitful. Multiply. My favor's upon you. He gave them the most gorgeous sense of approval and generosity that he ever could have. Here's my blessing on your life. And now look what happens in Genesis 3. After their sin and fall, there's a curse. And, and I know that we can't hit all of this, but I want to I pinpoint how this affected the marriage relationship. So jump down to verse 16. To the woman, God said... I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Women, that curse is true, amen? Yeah, I know. Okay, we won't harp on that one. 
I have seven stories to tell, but we won't do that right now. Here's where, the, here's where the curse impacts their relationship. Look at the end of verse 16. Your desire, he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is a part of the curse. Your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. What in the world is he talking about here? And just for sake of time, I want to I draw the net on this. Here's where most theologians, and I agree with this, go with this whole concept. They believe that the curse is related to the act that they just committed. The desire is not that of wanting to be with him all the time, this romantic, oh, I love him all of the time. But that as what happened at the fall, that her desire will be for him, for his role, for that lead to be able to be independent or autonomous or make those decisions without this oneness that is there. And so her desire will lean toward that of disregarding or independence, or disrespect. That will be involved in her heart. And then it mentions his problem will be he will rule. It's going to be heavy-fisted. It will not be in love. It will be harsh. And this will be the tendency of many husbands. They will tend to lack love. They will tend to break out in, in, a, in a way of leadership that does not lovingly bring them along. And how true it is that when you look at the curse, that women will struggle with respect and yielding, you look at that part of the curse, and when you go to the New Testament, like to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, and it has commands for the woman, guess what it commands the woman? Commands them to yield. Never commands a woman to love. I would suggest women, you still love your husband, so. And then look at the command for the husband. Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, it says, husbands, what does it say? Husbands, love. Right in lockstep with what the curse is. God's saying, I know your struggle. I know your challenge. Women, you're going to struggle with this, yield. Husbands, you're going to struggle with this, love. Reminds me of an older couple. I may have mentioned this before. Hilda and Sven. They've been married over 50 years. Fought almost every day. Finally, later in their life, they both got sick of it, and Hilda said to Sven in her thick accent, Sven, I've been thinking. I'm tired of us arguing. And I think the best thing is for us to pray that God will take one of us home to heaven. And after that, 
I will go live with my sister. Yeah, it's kind of funny, but you know, we're affected by this curse. Can we drop the other mask this morning? You know that mask, the one we wore before COVID? Can we drop that one and say we all are hellaciously affected by the curse. And I wish I could say pastors were exempt. Together but not one. And most of marriage's attacks, you realize, are not from out there. They are from in here. Are we... We on the same page with this, right? Yeah. I don't have to worry about others attacking my marriage. I do a good enough job myself. Like that one flesh takes enough hits internally. You know, the accusing, well, it's your fault. You know, if you didn't do that, I wouldn't have done this. Doesn't that sound like the garden, huh? Or the passivity, the indifference on the part of a husband or the woman just relegating the husband to the, back, to the background or disrespecting his thoughts. This is stupid. This is a stupid thought you have. Every time you come up with stuff, it, it's ruined. It's stupid. And every statement and every interaction becomes a damaging blow to the oneness that God designed for our unions. I, I know this, friends. I've experienced this. We're all in the same page. Friends, there's not a person alive that's not impacted by the curse. And it seems insurmountable. Like, how will we ever get rid of the curse? It seems incurable. You know, will man and woman be stuck in this cycle forever? Like, how in the world can I bust through? Are we just hopeless here? Like, your marriage is cursed. Let's close in prayer. Can we ever get out? I got good news. There's a cure. There's a cure for the curse. So look at chapter 3. This is good stuff. The cure for the curse was even before the curse was given. And it starts in verse 14. And it is what God says to the serpent. He says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust. It's like a sign of defeat. You know when you tell someone, eat dirt. That's what he's telling the, the serpent. You're going to eat dust all the days of your life. You're going to be defeated. 
And here's how it breaks down, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here's how this breaks down. You ready? I got good news. The cure for the curse is Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound good, folks? Huh? Huh? The cure for the curse is Jesus Christ. Before the curse even came, God said, I'm going to send someone and he's going to crush you, serpent, and he's going to crush you, sin. And he's going to crush you, curse. And here's how we know who this is. Because he says it's the offspring of the woman. You know, through the Bible, it would always talk about the offspring of the man. But here's the offspring of the woman. Gee, I wonder why it would say that. Because Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. No man. Adam, or or Joseph, God stepped in, born of a virgin. So it's the offspring of a woman. It's Jesus. And then he says, you know what, there's going to be a day. It's down the road, it's from her offspring. And he mentions the serpent is going to strike at his heel. And that offspring, Jesus Christ, with something better than a penny loafer is going to go and crush, crush the head of the serpent forever. And that's what Jesus Christ did at the cross. Done. Nice try, Satan. But you've been defeated. You and your deception, and your sin. It's been taken down by the cure, which is Jesus Christ. And Genesis 3.15, this cure... Jesus who would come gives way to John 3.16. You kind of feel the interplay. Genesis 3.15, I'm sending someone. He's going to do it. John 3.16, here he comes. God so loved the world. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. It sets the other one up. He's going to come. He came. And he rescued you. So how does Jesus cure us from the curse? I want to give you a few things as we finish. How does Jesus cure us? Number one, he gives us forgiveness. He gives us forgiveness. When he died, he traded his perfection for our sin, his resume for ours, He gave us the only way to be accepted and approved by God after all the wrong we've done. There's nothing we can do to cure ourselves. I hope we realize that. We're 
incapable of self-recovery. We need someone from the outside to cure us. And that's Jesus by his death on the cross. He bore the punishment for all of our sin. And no matter what you've done in your marriage, in your relationships, friends, Jesus died on the cross for all of it. For every bit of it. You can be completely forgiven because of his death for you. And so the beauty is that's the first step is to come to Jesus to give your life to him to ask for his forgiveness. And then here's the second thing. Forgiven people forgive. In that whole idea of forgiveness, he gives us forgiveness, not just for us, but that we can forgive others. So just think about this. Who are we as a spouse if we've been forgiven to then not forgive our spouse? I'm not gonna forgive you, okay? But God's forgiven you. Forgiven people forgive. Here's the second thing. He makes us new. How does Jesus cure us from the curse? He makes us new. There's transformational power. The old is gone. The new has come. You know, I've heard people say, he'll never change. You ever hear that? You ever say it? She'll never change. Let me just tell you, yo, Jesus changes what he does. Like he didn't die to keep us the same way. So it is possible. This can be done because of his death. He can change us from the inside to truly make us new. Here's number three. How does he cure us? He gives us forgiveness. He makes us new. He brings us to the door of humility. And let me just say, folks, this is the key to your marriage. It's the key to Christianity. No one comes to Jesus proud, but we come acknowledging that we're sinners, that we've blown it. Like, I, I, I've lost it. And God, I need your forgiveness. That's, that's the step, the first step of Christianity is humility. Can I tell you that's the first step and the regular step of rightness with your spouse is humility. Pride will kill your marriage. But the humility that Jesus showed and that we come to Jesus with in asking for forgiveness is the same humility we need with our spouse. And instead of like Adam, you made me do it, we own up to it ourselves. You know, I've never had anyone disagree with my apologies. When I've apologized to my wife, she's never said, oh, no, 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 you've never done anything wrong. When I've said to my wife, you know, I'm an idiot, she normally says, well, now we have something to agree with, you know? <laughs> We're on the same page, isn't this great, you know? But humility is the salve, it's the healing salve on your marriage and relationships. Humility. 
and you won't heal without it. Here's the last one. He gives us community. He gives us each other. He made us for community. We need each other. If you look around the room, everyone in here has the curse. And we will do well to interconnect, to help each other through the power of Jesus Christ to bust through this stupid curse that kills marriages. And I will say your degree of openness is your degree of growth. Let down our pre-COVID mask and be humble and let God mend your marriage and make you new. Is this touching your heart today? You sense where this is going? And even if you're not married, you realize how you could help someone who is. Would you stand with me for a moment? If you're sitting by your spouse, with every head bowed and eyes closed, if you're sitting by your spouse, just grab their hand. And in your heart and in your mind, it's time to commit that you're not just going to be together. You're going to be one. You're going to be humble. You're going to be forgiving. You're going to release grudges. And maybe even enter into community and just lay it all out on the table and say, here we are. This is us. Help. Don't let this message end now. Let's keep it going. And Father, in the power of Jesus Christ, thank you for the cure. Wow. Or we'd be in deep trouble. We can't do it on our own. God, thank you for forgiveness and for transformational power. God, thank you for all that you've done. Please work in us. Awaken us to the seriousness of all of this. Help us to see where we try to go rogue or independent or where there's disrespect or where there's a lack of love or indifference, or heavy-fistedness. Help us to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ to each other. And then may everyone see that we are your followers by our love. By our love. Use this. Change us. Grow us. And together, the church says, amen, amen.